Hey everybody, Darcy here. This is part two of our Dyatlov Pass episode, so if you haven't listened to part one, be sure to check that out. We are picking up where we left off after the discovery of the bodies. Uh, last episode I said there's only two parts, when in fact there are three, so be sure to keep a lookout on Monday for our third and final Dyatlov Pass episode. And thank you, and have a good Monday. They find the two bodies, both men. They are not wearing jackets. They're not wearing pants. One has on a checkered shirt and a pair of swim trunks under long underwear. Only the right leg of the underwear remains. So it's like, it's like torn away, right? Mm -hmm. Not the leg itself, but the, the underwear. His feet are bare with snow wedge between his toes. And the other body is slightly more covered in an undershirt, a checkered shirt, long underwear, briefs, and socks. But the clothes on both bodies are brutally shredded, with pieces apparently missing, leaving much of their discolored, discolored skin exposed. One lies face down in the snow, his arms folded under his head like a pillow. There are broken cedar branches lying beneath him. The other lies on his back, his face turned upwards. His mouth and eyes have been gotten at by birds. So, Yikes. here's where I'm, my mind's at at yeah, this point. I, I, I want to hear. I stumble across this scene. First thing. So, I see these two bodies. Yeah. Uh, torn apart, I guess, instantly from now, my Americanized media. They're not torn of, apart. Or no, the clothes are torn. The clothes are torn apart. I just want to make sure that's clear. So I still think, at first I thought bear. Right. Because that's, you know, something goes wrong when you're hiking. Uh, it's bear. bear. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't sound like their bodies were ripped up. Right. And it'd be very Weird crazy for, for the bear to rip the clothes, but not the bodies. Right. But the cedar bow has me thinking they fell out of a tree. And it hit mm -hmm. branches on the way down, knocking mm -hmm. the bows out of the tree. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So whatever. All right. Good. Call good intuition. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll continue. We'll get back. We're we're gonna. I'm gonna keep going. So two bodies. Wait. So did you tell us who these two bodies are yet? Uh, or not is, yet. Is that yet? Not yet. To, That's to yet to be discovered. Bold. I'm gonna in the in the book. He basically is jumping back and forth between 2012. And 1959, because he himself goes into the Diablo oh, Pass. Like he actually so this is a primary source for a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not only that, he interviews Yuri Yudin. No fucking yeah. way. So That's he, amazing. Right? So he interviews Yuri Yudin in 2012. And at this point, he go, he's asking Yuri Yudin what his thoughts on everything were. What is his body like? <laughs> Right? He had rheumatoid arthritis when he was in college. He's still alive. Yeah, the dude. Is that's his, just Russian, is his like brain and a robot. Yeah, what? Like, so he asked what his, his body's made out of. Nineteen eighties Russian, like steel, like a robot. <laughs> so Yudin says much has been made of the hikers' relationships, and that somehow arguments with the girls led to the deaths. But that's bullshit. He Who said that? That's your Yudin, straight from the horse's mouth. He thinks that the girl started no. an argument and everyone no, died. No, no, no. He says that a lot of people say that, like, it was due to arguments over, like, the girls. Oh, over the girls. Yeah, infighting in the group about the girls. Ooh, that's a good storyline. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of like a plausible idea. Like, yeah, seven it's, dudes it's being it's like, like Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and then everyone died. <laughs> yeah, right. But then your but Yudin is saying, that's bullshit. I, Wait, oh, you're Yudin saying it's bullshit. Yeah, he's saying that those theories are bullshit because I knew these people. That's not what they were like. They would never kill each other over Yeah, these Zena people and Luda. made radios and right, played right. mandolin together. <laughs> right, exactly. That's not they would who, never do that. Exactly. So when Johnny Iker asks Yuri Yudin what his thoughts on the events were, he says, 
the number one possibility in my mind is that it was people who came across, who came with guns because they were in the area they shouldn't have been, or they saw something they shouldn't have seen. He went on to say that our men had coerced the hikers into fabricating a scene to throw off investigators. The men forced them to walk into the forest half naked and to shred their own clothes before being left to die, so they were forced to do it to create this kind of madness. Holy crap. That's what he thinks. I kind of buy it. I mean, that does, like, their, the lack of any clear cause of the bodies you've told me so far makes me think it could be a half-assed thing like that where they're like, just throw off the trail. Yeah. So he goes on to say that the clue that convinces him that of this, like, theory, mm-hmm. Luda's missing tongue. Right. He says yeah. that, well, basically, so skeptics' interpretations of the missing tongue was that they were out there lying for days and tongues are soft tissue that can be a vulture yeah right some kind of animal could get to it however however you didn't doubted that and said if it had been a mouse it would have happened to everyone to all the bodies instead he believed someone had singled out luda for punishment possibly because she had been she had been the most strong-willed and outspoken of the group was it just an animal or did she talk too much and that was a warning for from and that was a warning from government officials so he thinks insisting it's like he's going government kgb KGB type of thing. Yeah, he's thinking it's KGB type deal. Like and they, they saw in, something the government was doing. Yeah. That they weren't supposed to. Which right. I believe in Soviet Russia. And I think they were pretty quick to kill anyone that didn't really go with the flow. And we'll get into it later, but there were sightings of strange things in the sky around the time. So a lot of yes. people so maybe military testing. Sector forty one. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that's where his mind's at. So that's just a that's small, where my mind's at now too. Yeah, honestly. that's that's like a little 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 taste of what Yuri Yudin's think in modern day. So he's like, mm-hmm. I'm convinced it's government conspiracy. Back to February 1959. We're gonna continue. Same day that the two bodies were found. Same day. Same day. Um, they figured out actually who the two bodies were. Who was it? So let me go back to the picture. With all the sure. People. So, the bodies of Yuri Duroshenko and Georgi Krivonoshenko were the two bodies that were found lying down. So, Yuri was the original, he's the jokester mandolin player. Right. And who was Duroshenko? What was his thing? Yuri Duroshenko? Yeah, what was or his? Georgi. Duroshenko was... What, what was his, his sh- shtick? How do I remember him? So he was, like he was the one who, like, scared the bear away? Oh, yeah, this guy's... Uh, yeah. Okay. With his uh, yeah. So he just the guy with a little hammer that like scared him away. That's 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 Tershenko. So those are the two bodies found. Where the funny guy and the brave dude are found together. Same day as the bodies are found, German shepherds are tugging, pulling this guy over to powdery snow in the direction of a young birch, who shoots her up from the ground in unnatural angles, as if coerced by gravity or wind. Basically, it was one of the Mansi's dogs is sniffing out something is it a body we all think it's a body <laughs> and you know you're right it is a body so he's basically like okay the dog smells something here we got to start digging so they start to dig and they toss the snow and uh just inches beneath the surface they hit something hard they find a patch of dark cloth and after more snow is cleared away they can make out the shape of a joint covered in wool an elbow so we find an e-cap we found two bodies. We found an elbow. How many bodies we go find? 
What's the math on this one? I mean, just an elbow isn't a full body. Is there more to the elbow? Whoa. So they continue Let's to carve it. <laughs> they continue to carve away the snow until something human emerges. First an arm, then hands, then another arm, until it becomes clear that the arms are held across the chest in what appears to be a defensive gesture. But in fact, the arms are clutching the birch, pulling its spindly trunk downward, giving the trunk its awkward angle. The men unearth more of the body. They observe that this hiker is dressed more warmly than Durashenko and, and Krivenishenko, excuse me, but not by much. Uh, the man, it turns out to be a guy, and he, is, he has a sweater pulled over a checkered shirt, plus a fur vest and ski trousers. Like his companion, he is without hat or gloves. He is also shoeless, with only a pair of mismatched socks pulled over painfully curled feet. What happened to everyone's shoes? No one's wearing shoes. They don't have hats. They don't have gloves. Well, no. The dude was the in, shoes are the what dude was definitely in swim shorts. The last dude. Well, that's true, but still, the shoes are what I'm stuck on. Yeah, that's why it's like so weird. Is that's another thing? Where like nobody understands why yeah. the hell they all took off. And where are their shoes? That's why I think it was someone made them do it. Do you think? And it was like, take off all your shoes. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is that in the tent, there were pairs of shoes neatly organized. Okay, so now my opinion's a little bit different. Right. So they found a butt, like, the tent seemed, like, unperturbed when they came across it. So weird. If you're going to leave the tent, you're going to put your shoes on. You're all experienced grade two hikers. You're not running out into the snow without your shoes or gloves or hats, etc. Yeah. Which is indicative of an event happening that's making them like, we got to go now. Either we got to go or. So he's, he doesn't have hat, gloves, or shoes. He's also shoeless. Oh, uh, yeah. So um, he has a pair of mismatched socks pulled over, painfully curled feet. On his left wrist is a Zvezda watch, a popular brand ma- manufactured north of Moscow. Uh, the watch is stopped at 531. The position of the body as it clings to the birch is one of suspended struggle as if the victim had been fighting against the elements until his last breath. Wait, who is it? Well, the guys who find the body uh, are hard. The, it's a Mancy's, right? So they don't know. They can't identify these people because they don't know. Them. Yeah. Um, however, one of the search members is like, I know who that is. He's confronted with the unmistakable features of the hiking party's leader, Igor Dyatlov. So they find Dyatlov's body on February 27th. Especially if anyone was to be, to, who would know to like, hey, if we're leaving this tent, we got to put on all this stuff, all this gear. Obviously, that should be like step one for all these people, but like especially Igor. Numero uno. Yeah, because he's like the big, he's the big honcho. He's the head boy. So after the news of his body being discovered, searchers begin to fan out from the birch. They have more police dogs with them, and several hundred yards away from the birch, as the land slopes upwards toward a valley, a dog starts to pace back and forth over a smooth patch of snow. One of the canine guys who has, he's like a career canine crime handler. scene dog guy. Yeah, handler. That's a way. Crime scene dog, <laughs> crime guy. dog guy, for short. Crime scene dog guy. Um, he's like, okay, we got something. He stops and begins to dig. And eventually him and another guy, him and another search member, search party member reveal a figure just beneath the surface. It is clear from the smaller statue that this is a woman. Uh, she lies on her right side, face down, arm twisted beneath her. Her pretty face is dark with dry blood. And her- Wait, let me guess. Is it Xena? 
Her right leg is bent as if she had been in mid-climb before collapsing. Unlike the other bodies, however, she is the first to be dressed somewhat sensibly for the climate. She wears a hat, ski jacket, and ski pants. Yet like the others, she is mysteriously without shoes. Her feet are covered only in socks. The young woman's body is Zina Kolmogorov. Got it. 50-50 shot. <laughs> Nailed it. The shoes, man. Yeah, the shoes, right? Shoes. I don't understand. Exactly. That's where it's like very confusing. Now, mm-hmm. once the bodies start turning up, Ms. Lenikov basically becomes the investigator because he's like, yo, this is Evgeny. Sorry, I yeah, call, okay. call my last name. Yeah, now we're Evgeny. back. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Evgeny's like, I guess I'm just like the dude now. He always was. Um, and he starts coming up with theories of what he thinks is happening. I like he just starts firing them out. Yeah, so he he's sending <laughs> off radiograms. Very back insensitive to, to anyone who knew them. So he's sending off messages back to Ivdel with early theories of the hike of what happened to the hikers. Uh, and at first he thinks that they were swept down the slope by gale force winds. So he sends back. Does that happen? Well, I don't. I mean, the winds get really crazy. They blow you out of your tent. Well, that's and allow some of you to put on clothes, <laughs> but not all of you. Well, I mean, it's it's, it's like. Milady put on your <laughs> ski trunks and ski no shoes though yeah. <laughs> i swear to God, if that wind catches you with shoes on Dude, you're gonna have a real bad time you might not die <laughs> yeah so he sends a telegram back to ivdel that like city right before they stop like right before they start hiking the last yeah. outpost yeah the they said, civilization we didn't have time the the radiogram reads we didn't have time to examine tent probably they were buried under heavy snow the tent got torn people stood up were swept away downhill by wind this echoed a radiogram sent from camp earlier in the day from other members of the search party saying, in 16 hours, four bodies found in different places and they were scarcely dressed and barefoot, which leads us to believe they were swept by a storm. Yet even in this early theory, which seems to make perfect sense to the people on the ground, it wasn't adding up for the people back in Ivdel. They sent back from Ivdel to the search party. They said, why were things left in the tent if people were swept away by wind? Fair point. Yeah, I like that it took the people... Um Almost hundred like miles away to just point that out. Yeah, you had to be like, "Hey guys, uh, just- um, you're standing right there. How come this didn't happen?" Right. That was February twenty seventh. They they have five hikers still unaccounted for. They had okay. found four bodies. So let's review. Let's review. We have Zena dead. Igor, the main man, dead. One of the mandolin dudes, Georgie, uh, Georgie, dead, and Doroshenko. Doroshenko, the bear fighter, dead. dead. So those are the four bodies they find on the 27th. So we have five more to go. Five more to go. The next day, having exhausted the area near the birch and cedar trees, Yevgeny and his teams focus on the trail of footprints leading downhill from the tent, a path that had turned up nothing from the previous day. Surprisingly, the search dogs were so useful the day before, uh, they're now encountering difficulty. Yevgeny is getting mad at these dogs and he radiograms saying these dogs are useless in deep snow. So instead, he outfits the searchers with steel avalanche probes, which are just like long, like metal sticks that they're just like sticking to the snow. It's a poker. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and so they're doing like, like what they do in like swamps where like you line up in a line and you just start going like in grid formations, just like poking at stuff until you hit something. They do that in swamps? Yeah. Sorry, I'm not. That's like a thing that happens. Okay. Is like, if you're, if you're in like a deep, like terrain with like, like a swamp or like deep snow, the the way they find the objects is that they all line up with some kind of like prodding, you know, object, and mm-hmm. they just start like poking, and then they walk, and they just do like a grid until they hit something, because it's like so hard to find things. In. Yeah, that still seems flawed. Probably like, there's a good chance you can miss. Definitely. I mean, they probably have modern techniques now that probably are 
better. But I know I've seen that a few times in different mystery whatevers. I don't know. Shows. Hardy Boys. Yeah. All the Hardy Boys when they're always looking for bodies in swamps. Scooby-Doo. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they start doing that. Um, basically, uh, probing the snow is more difficult than it sounds. Some patches of snow are so dense that it requires a strenuous effort to shove the probe all the way through the permafrost. Uh, a single searcher could make 10,000 picks in the snow per day, covering an average of up to 30,000 yards, yet still turn up nothing. Cool. The four bodies they found, they basically wrapped them all up in tarpaulin and stored them, <laughs> and stored them about a mile from the, the campsite under a large boot-shaped rock called Boot Rock. Very, boot rock. very creative oh. name. Very ironic. Right. Meanwhile, Meslenikov continues to puzzle over the evidence, articulating confusion in another radiogram to Ivdel. So Evgeny is now like, why why the whole group left the tent half-dressed? We don't know yet. Absolutely no notion. So he's like, I have no idea what the hell's going on. What we're looking at. Right. Okay, so we're looking, we're still looking for the other five. Do we? When do we find the other five? I need to find them. <laughs> I need, I need, I to, need to find these people. I need to know what they're wearing um, or not wearing. Right, so... I'm guessing shoes. Right. They're not wearing. So eventually they have a lead prosecutor from Ivdel show up. Ooh. Got a lawyer on the scene? Well, yeah, they have... Like, he's, it's, Is that what prosecutor meant back no, then? No, it's like more a like a head investigator. He's like the, uh, like a legit investigator. Because right now it's like okay. Evgeny, just like the volunteer. He's a detective. Yeah, this like detective shows up. Here are the notes he... Real gumshoe. Yeah. These are the facts that he noted on the, the 28th. He says, The tent was set on the slope at a height of 1,079 meters. An event spot was made under the tent with skis laid at the bottom. The tent was covered with snow. The entrance was partially open with sheet curtains sticking out. Under traces, or urine traces, excuse me, were found where someone had gone, had been taking a leak, he writes. When the tent was dug out, the a, t- a tear in the tent on... But someone was peeing in the tent? No, no, no. Someone had gone outside and peed. Oh, okay. When the tent was dug out, a tear in the tent on the slope-facing side close to the entrance was found with a fur jacket sticking out of the hole. The descent-facing side was torn to pieces. A pair of bound skis was laying in front of the tear entrance, and arrangements of things made in the tent are cataloged. So he just kind of, like, writes up a real quick, real quick, like, these are the facts of the situation. So after the 28th, when this investigator shows up, they still haven't found any more bodies. No bodies. No more bodies. Still only at four? He does note that the the head detective, the like Russian government detective, uh, yeah. took all of the group's documents except for sketches and personal notebooks, including five copies of the route schedules. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what this detective did because once he gets back to Ivdel, he would not get a second chance to go back to the case. Why? Um, his services would no longer be needed... Because after the first bodies had been found the day before, higher-ups in the regional prosecutor's office were already arranging to have him removed with a more powerful detective. By March 1st, yeah, so like they're like, hey, get rid of this local dude. We're getting like our like F- it's FBI. It's like the FBI rolling up and be like, yeah. this is our crime scene. Something. So, yeah. <laughs> you know? So this is a dude you want to remember. His name's Lev Ivanov. Lev So we've got Lev Gordo, who is in the air. But Lev Ivanov. So we got Gordo and Ivanov. Yeah, Ivanov. I'm going to stick to Ivanov. Ivan- Ivanov is the, the badass gumshoe FBI Russian equivalent coming in. Right. So he's the big... It's his crime scene now. Yeah, he's the big Russian FBI guy who's going to take off his shades and say a witty pun, and then the who's the going to play. play. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So Lev Ivanov, big guy, he shows up. His personal motto is, I am honest, not corrupt, and I sleep well. <laughs> that guy... 
I can trust a guy who's so direct. Yeah. So when your motto is that you say I'm not corrupt, <laughs> that you're definitely corrupt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I think, but you're pretty much asking for it more yeah. or less. Yeah. So Ivanov's first order of business is to board a helicopter and familiarize, familiarize himself with the locations where the bodies were discovered. Is he just going to like spot them? There is little to be seen in the places where Zena and Dyatlov have fallen, but the sight of the 25-foot cedar yields more clues. Clues. Yeah. So Ivanov shows up. He's like, a candlestick. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, it was Miss Scarlet. <laughs> so... He finds more clues. Examining the charred cedar branches at the fire pit, Ivanov determines that the fire had not burned for more than two hours. It is also apparent from broken branches found nearby that one of the men had climbed the tree and had likely fallen in the process of cutting away branches. Something you said earlier. Yeah. Look at you. You should be an FBI agent. Regular gumshoe. Cedar trees are dry and fragile, and the bough may have, been, may have given way beneath them. This would be consistent with the cuts and bruises found on Doroshenko's body, as well as the branches found beneath them. Once the men had started the fire, it would have been large enough to warm them, but not large enough to keep it burning for long. There are also additional footprints leading Ivanov to believe that at least one other person besides Doroshenko and Korivinshenko had been present at the site of the tree. Oh, is he going to be up in the tree? That's going to be so creepy if his body's up in the tree. <laughs> I don't, no, he's not up in the tree. <laughs> no, that would, if he's like, he's going to look up and it's like frozen there looking at him. Oh no, my God. that is not what happens. There's also evidence of firewood and fir twigs having been gathered for the fire but not used. The obvious question then, besides why the hikers had been only half dressed with no shoes, is why gather perfectly good firewood but let the fire go out? Yeah, that doesn't add up. If they were running from something, why would they have, be gathering firewood? Right. That's a great question. <laughs> they wouldn't be like, ah, ah. oh, wait, hey. Yeah. Is this fur? <laughs> Let's get some of this firewood. So now Yevgeny, in the meantime, in one of his many daily radiograms to Ivdel, begins to imagine a sequence of events for the night of the first, which is the night this all took place. The, all the, the unknown thing happened on the 1st of February. Okay. 1st of February. That's when everything went to, to hell. So. This is the radio room. He says, maybe someone who was dressed went outside to take a leak and was swept away. His cry made others jump out of the tent and they were swept off too. Tent is set in most dangerous point with strongest wind possible. And it's impossible to go 50 meters back uphill as tent was torn. Those who were below could command to go to forest on slope. Well, you're losing me. Yeah, he's, the way he writes it is weird because it's like a radiogram. So it's kind of like, I'm trying to like piece it. No grammar. Yeah. So give give me a TLDR. TLDR, uh, he's saying maybe someone went out to pee, they got swept away by strong winds, and the rest of the group went out to try and save them. But okay, then in doing sense. so, they also got lost in like the crazy swept away. swept away. That would that would explain the fire maybe because they wanted to warm him. Right. Person they like had to. But would that explain all of the missing clothes? If you no, think they especially would, like, not the out, shoes, you think they would probably get. Dressed. I I still am thinking about the shoes. I'm gonna not sleep tonight because I'm thinking about the shoes. Right. So at this point, Yuri Blinov, one of the Scott, one of the the guy helping Lev Gordo out in the air, is like, "Hey, one of the two playing guys. Hey, first of all, these are my friends, and they're all dead, and that's really traumatic. Yeah. And B, I'm missing a lot of school. So he's like, I gotta bounce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he flies Dude, back I have home calculus. to resume. Can we wrap this up? <laughs> <laughs> to resume their, his college life. He's gone. That's like most of them. It's fine. <laughs> I gotta go. Yeah. So March 2nd, they continue probing with those sticks. They start expanding the search beyond the river valley. And one of Evgeny's radiograms that day indicates he's rethinking his initial theory. He now says, would like to ask if any new type of meteorological rocket probe flew over the incident spot 
on the evening of February 1st. Right? So now he's thinking maybe there was like a missile launch or a rocket that might have been being tested in this rural area of the mountains. What would that... Would there be evidence of that? Well, that's what he's trying... Like he's basically trying to find off? out. Okay. Was there? He doesn't get a response. Uh, I wouldn't expect him to. No. The following days bring a snowstorm and high winds. The searchers press on. And Yevgeny also expresses for the first time his belief that the rest of the hikers did not get out alive. So Yevgeny sends another radiogram saying, Team reached Lo- Lozva. Dyatlov's group's trace is not found. Snow from Main Ridge dumped into this brook. Snow is very deep. Probability that they that part of the group escaped through this valley is zero. He's like, there's no way the rest of these... Anyone's alive. Yeah, he's like, everyone's dead. Like, pretty, pretty much guaranteed. Yeah. So, basically, at this point, head FBI guy, Lev Ivanov, is like, okay, I've gathered all the things. I'm going to do the rest of this from my office where it's fucking warm. <laughs> He didn't even find all the bodies. <laughs> He's like, you know what? I got, I got all I need. So they see Lev Ivan, Yevgeny, and some other people say, like, see you later, Lev. The prosecutor has done what he can at the tent and will continue the investigation from his office in Sverdlovsk. And he's taking the bodies of Doroshenko, Karivinashenko, Igor, and Zina so that they can undergo aut- autopsies in the next couple of days. Yevgeny continues to explore his own theories. He sends a radiogram saying, The main mystery is why would the whole group flee the tent? The only thing found outside the tent, besides the ice pick, is a Chinese torch on the tent roof. This provides one fully dressed person, or this proves, excuse me, one fully dressed person went outside and gave some signals to others to flee the tent at once. Uh, He also clarifies his question about the rocket probes. One possible reason is some natural phenomenon or passage of meteorological rocket probe which was seen on february 1st from ivdel that's like he's like maybe they saw that and freaked out and ran he's like maybe this rocket went i'm not buying that yeah it's it's a little little far-fetched what the the shoes the thing is is that other groups also testified us that they saw like explosions i believe that happened i don't believe that's the cause of their that they were just like i'm not gonna put on any of my clothes or shoes gotcha and i'm gonna run out into a um siberian winter right so here's an interesting thing several days after the visit to the mansi village okay so in in yevgeny's radiogram he says you know people are we're talking about rocket pros because this because carolyn's group saw rockets now carolyn is, yeah, I don't know who that yeah, is. He's a new he's a new character. Carolyn's guy group refers to the it's the last name. He refers to the hiking team. Why is his first name Yuri? His no, it's Vladislav. <laughs> so Vladislav Carolyn, who is now among the search volunteers, uh, and his companions had set out in February, shadowing the Dialov's group's pass along the riverbed. Um basically and it turn it turns out that the group that the Mansi had like seen off and had tea with was Carolyn's group and not oh. Igor's group. Yeah, so that's why he's kind of an important person. Is that they were they were mis they had misinformation because it was not Igor's group. However, several days after their visit to the Mansi village, Carolyn and his friends had witnessed what he called a strange celestial phenomenon. Carolyn later told investigators that on the early morning of February 17th, he had been awoken by excited cries from the hikers on breakfast duty. I rushed out of my sleeping bag and tent without boots, just in socks, stood on branches and saw a large light spot, he recounted. It grew larger, a small star appeared in its center, and also grew bigger and bigger. 
The whole spot moved from northeast to southwest and down. Carolyn said that the light lasted just over a minute and that he supposed it was a large meteorite, but one of his friends, Georgie Admanaki, was so terrified by the orb of light, he feared a planet was about to collide with Earth. I talked with... That's what he jumped to? Yeah, well, that's what, that's how, like, huge and crazy scary this object was. He's like... That is pretty scary, but after World War II, I think I wouldn't go straight to... To a planet collision. A planet's coming. <laughs> so... I talked with the witness later, Altmanaki told investigators, and they described the event similarly and added that the light was so intense that people were awoken inside their houses. So, like, people in villages nearby, the it was such a bright light that they were like, what? The? Like, it, it yeah. woke them up from being asleep. So now we got celestial phenomenon, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and the weirdness, and this is being now backed up by other groups in the area, right? So, uh, over the coming days, the evidence grows stranger. On March 5th, as Carolyn and another volunteer are probing a previously unexplored area about a thousand years, y- yards from the site of the hiker's tent, they hit something not far beneath the surface, a fifth body. When they Ooh. dig away the snow, Carolyn is able to identify him as Rustic Slobodin. His body rustic, is lying face down with his right leg ben- bent beneath him and his right fist pulled to his chest. He has on a checkered shirt, sweater, ski trousers, several pairs of socks, and a single felt shoe. He's wearing multiple socks. Yeah, he's got a bunch of socks. And but he didn't get to his shoe. He got one shoe. He has a single shoe. He also has a ski cap, which is still intact and on his head. Strange given the prevailing theory that the wind blew the hikers from their campsite. Right? Yeah. Like, you would expect that to be off. So, Rustic lies midway between the, uh, where Dyatlov and Zena had been found. Their bodies, in turn, lining up with the site of the tent. Like Xena, Rustic is oriented towards the tent as if he had been working his way up the slope back to the tent at the time of his collapse. Carolyn and his companions notice a small uh, small hollow of encrusted snow near Rustic's nose and mouth, where his breath had melted the surrounding snow. Suggesting that Rustic... So he's buried alive. Suggesting that Rustic had been alive for some time after he fell. But what is most startling is in the front of Rustic's head, it is deeply discolored. Are you all right? Thought I heard something. <laughs> I am on high Dude, you're alert. Just, I see you looking out the windows like spooked. Dude, because there's like noises, but I think it's just the house being old. It is an old house, and there's going to be noises. What I think I heard was the light slash fan turning on, if I'm being honest. It was like a... Oh, that could be it. That's what I really hope it is. I mean, the light is on. <laughs> Wigging out, man. <laughs> and okay, anyway. so what's going on with his face? Okay, so his face is deeply discolored in the front of his head as if it had sustained a blunt force trauma to the head. You heard that. Yeah, what was... What did that sound like, though? Because I had the headphones in. It was like... Da-dum. Really quick. Oh, it's probably the cat on the um, kitchen table. All in this. I really hope it's the cat on the kitchen table, dude. I can't hear the word blunt force trauma and then Is the cat in there? Oh, I hate this. Where's the cat? Uh, off the, I think what happened was this is my guess. She jumped off the kitchen table and when she landed here, the cat. I really hope so. I keep I'm just scared something's gonna come up on the porch. That's true. All right, so, 
getting spooked. Yeah. In real life. In re- IRL spooked. Um, so yeah, blunt force trauma to the head is what it's indicative of. So around the time of the fifth body being found, of Rustic's body, the tent's contents are transported to Ivdel for further examination, and a discovery is made about the tent itself. Discovery, in fact, had been noted in the case file early on, but was not initially believed to be significant. Besides the ice axe gashes made by the first group that found the tent when they opened it, there are additional cuts to the back of the tent. There are no cuts of an, uh, of an ice axe, but appear to be made with more precision. There is one longer cut that is large enough to accommodate a person stepping through it. When a professional tailor is brought to the prosecutor's office to make a new uniform for one of its officers, the woman is also asked to take a look at the damaged tarpaulin. After examining the threads along the mysterious cut, she confirms what, is, what investigators have already concluded. It is deliberate slash made with a knife. The tailor hesitates to speculate beyond that, but for investigators, the meaning is clear. The hikers themselves would not have damaged their own tent in this way, even by accident. So this seems to suggest one thing. Someone from the outside knifed their way through the tent on that night. Who? So I'm starting to, I'm starting to really drink Yuri Yudin's Kool Aid <laughs> with his his theory. Yeah, you're really thinking it's it's an outside. It was someone who either was like psycho or thought that maybe they saw something they weren't supposed to. Mm-hmm. But so wait, this supernatural light. Yep. or whatever yep. that was seen on when the 14th so that's the thing is that two weeks after the night of this happening it's seen around the time but when they actually find out the specific dates the dates don't really line up well like the light was apparently seen after the first by like a group and then another group like said like it, you know it, we saw it on this day and so there's a lot of kind of excuse me a lot of vague dates on that one yeah so it's kind of tough to follow that however i don't know if you've thought of this at all one of the images on the site you'll see is the mansi carvings in the tree those are man those are mansi carvings mm-hmm. so they carved up trees uh so what i'm looking at is like a evergreen tree with its wood um two large horizontal carvings like kind of whittling down yep so and then one of them appear to have almost horizontal diagonal slant yeah like, so the top tally there's there's top things? three there's a diagonal slash in a tree uh three of them and that's supposed to be re- that represents how many mansi hunters were in a group the second mm-hmm. symbol represents the family sign and the third symbol uh the number of dogs in the group so it's three men three dogs and then a family sign on a tree and then there's the and date. then there's the date january 29 so that's that's this is a picture taken by the group of this tree Oh, so this is from... This is from before this happens, right? Okay. But so they're like walking through Mansi territory, taking pictures of Mansi woods. Mm-hmm. So a big theory is like maybe they were in a Mansi spiritual place or a place that they weren't supposed to be and got attacked the by Mansi. The got them. That's a common theory. But Yuri, Yuri says no. But, well, yeah, so they're generally the... I mean, Yuri doesn't say I guess that fits into his... Say no. Yuri thinks it's more government, but he yeah. thinks that... Well, his theory is that armed people took these people. You know, armed, gu- like, uh, gunmen came and, like, had the... That's your cat. That's my cat. But a lot of speculation around the Mansi exists also. As yeah. to, like, maybe they were, like, on a burial ground or some kind of Mansi spiritual site. And then mm-hmm. they were, like, Nodog 
we don't play that way. Yeah. But none of the Mansi can confirm that this is a spiritual site? Um, well, no. The Mansi go like, hey, that's not... They're First of all, they're they're known to be pretty peaceful people. And like mm-hmm. you saw with the skis where they're like, hey, we'll let, hop on the ski. We'll get you out towards your where you have to go to help out the Vladislav's group. Who's the... Investigator? No, Carolyn. Excuse me. Carolyn's oh, group. Oh, right. The, the second group. Yeah. Shadowing them. Yeah. So they're known to be like pass or not pacifists but you know peaceful people no ill will no ill will so that's kind of the biggest evidence against the theory of mancy is that like hey they weren't at a specific location that is important to mancy but also at the same time the mancy aren't ones that usually go out and do that even if they were now that doesn't they would give them a verbal warning maybe maybe like hey guys do you mind uh but they're not they're not known to be you know menacing indigenous people yeah they wouldn't commit an elaborate murder party right Right. Okay. So that now, I mean, there's not better evidence that they didn't do it, but that's like what basically people people think. Yeah. So they have a science officer examine the tarp that they sent back. Just a general science guy. Science officer and criminal expert. Okay. Took a closer look, and the various various holes patched by the hikers themselves. There's like so there's a bunch of holes in the tent, but some of them are patched by the hikers. Some have been made by the axe when they first got there. And we just said that, you know, there is these these holes in the tent from that could fit a person through made by a knife, right? So the science officer finds that usually, and this is a quote from the science officer, usually a tear spreads along the line of less resistance, i.e. either warp or weft threads are torn. Such defects are usually very uneven with straight angles. A cut always damages both thread types at various angles, and it is impossible to cut only warp threads or only weft threads. So basically what she concludes in that weird tailor jargon yeah. is that the cut was made from the inside of the tent, not from the outside. So someone was trying to get out the back of the tent. It was coming from inside, inside the house. The house. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, we got to get out this tent. I'm going to cut it open. Yeah. Which really only means something bad was happening because you're not going to damage your only shelter in the middle of a Siberian winter. Right. So, what the hell? <laughs> so, that's a big question. That mark. is, ooh. Yeah. So. So, they had to. So, they cut. That means that. Yeah. They, out of like, the tent. We have no way to get out of here. Like, we're in such dire straits right now that I need to cut my way out of this tent in the back because something's going on. Spooky, spookyboys.org backslash what's going on. I keep looking at these photos like I'm going to see something in the background. Like I'm going <laughs> to see gonna like, the, like Hiri Yudens in the background. Or, like, <laughs> just like, like rubbing his palms together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the tent was cut by a knife from inside in three places. Uh, and it means that they were escaping the tent in panic. The forensic examination of Igor, Zina, Georgie, and Doroshenko on March 4th and of Rustic on March 11th would conclude that the five hikers had died from hypothermia. Yeah. This was unsurprising conclusion, particularly to those who, were, who had found the bodies. That's kind of surprising. Well, I guess not surprising, but Rustic was smashed in the head, right? Yeah. But his ultimate cause of death being hypothermia. Okay, yeah. The question now was not how they died, but under what circumstances. The only way the investigators were going to figure that out was we need to find the rest of these corpses and hope that they have more clues. Because they're like, we're not getting much off these bodies. Yeah. They're in for a wait. Miserable weather, weary volunteers, and a Soviet holiday celebrating International Working Women's Day (laughs) 
slow the search efforts on the slope. <laughs> well, I'm not going to give up my International Working Women's Day to, for some investigation, Darcy. In early March... I'm going out and I'm celebrating the working women <laughs> of the Soviet Union. In early March, Yevgeny flew to Ivdel to make an appearance in front of the search commission. Uh, with the unanimous support of his men, the engineer recommended that search efforts be suspended until April to allow some of the snow to melt. The commission, Probably however, rejected Yevgeny's proposal, opting instead to replace the entire search team and continue as planned. <laughs> He's like, how about instead of what you're suggesting? Let's fire get everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they make a new team. They hire this like avid mountaineer and the head of the university's mountaineering club. So they basically <laughs> replace Yevgeny as like the the like so Yevgeny's not there anymore so Yevgeny's gone and he's replaced and now it's like a mountaineering guy instead of a hiking guy <laughs> like they, it's like it's literally like are those things different um I well so Yevgeny was not part of if anyone the, wants to write in tell us what the difference between mountaineering <laughs> and hiking is Yevgeny was a a consultant to the school whereas this guy was a head of university mountaineering so this guy is like an internal club leader. Oh, okay. That makes Yevgeny sense. was like a third party comps. Sounds like a prime opportunity for a cover up. <laughs> so I see where they're at. So the searchers on the slope had gathered. Yeah. So new, new searchers go out. They gather up the contents of the hikers tent haphazardly having stuffed items into backpacks with little regard to ownership. Glad they hired this new group. <laughs> Everything was a, g- yeah. So, Yuri Yudin uh, basically went down to the like the FBI headquarters equivalent to be like, mm-hmm. let me check out the stuff and like try and help out. Yeah. So he said everything was in a giant pile and the task of untangling the massive objects and assigning each one to its proper owner fell entirely on him. So he literally, they're like, hey, can you go through all your friend's stuff? Yeah. Can like, you do the evidence? And just uh, figure out whose was whose. He said that uh, Yuri separated the items into nine piles. A telescopic toothbrush belonged to Zena. A horn-rimmed glasses in a gray case was Igor, Igor's. A Bowie knife and compass was Kolya's. A mandolin with spare string was... Jo- a Bowie knife. A mandolin with a spare string was Georgie's. Gray wooden socks received as a present from Yuri was Luna's. So he's like, <laughs> like this gift I gave my friend, I have to like... It's it's a pretty grim... Who's dead? <laughs> yeah, that... <laughs> That, thanks for reminding me of that part. Um, a scarf, a badge, an issue of a satirical magazine, blue mittens, and a teddy bear. <laughs> what do you think satirical I, magazines <laughs> were in Russia? In Soviet Russia, where they can't even use radios. Yeah, it's just a, like a blank picture. It has to just be talking <laughs> shit about America. Probably. There's no way it's like... No. Saying like a cartoon. Is, there's no like Russian Russia. Garfield. <laughs> no. It's like, I want to eat lasagna. Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> that's not happening at all. So, so Yuri's like, he, he found a bit of contraband in Kalevatov's backpack, a pack of cigarettes, which he was like, hey, bro, we all made a pack to not smoke. But that's just a side note. <laughs> <laughs> it's a side note. It's a side note. And then he also found in Igor's notebook. Uh, a photograph of Xena tucked inside Warrior of Warrior Princess. Wait, which one is it? Is it on the site, no, the picture of Xena? I don't believe so. That was going to be the one of her here. Like, This is good podcasting, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's a picture of her, and she's like writing in a small thing. That's, her, that's the diary small that we're journal. reading out of. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's her diary. So 
so he's like, had Igor simply been using the snapshot of his friend as a bookmark, or did it mean something more to him? Were they like a couple? Blah, 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 blah. They definitely were. For sure. I don't know, but they definitely were. <laughs> I don't know, but like, this is how rumors start. They definitely were. <laughs> so he left the office emotionally spent, but his, the journey's heartache was not yet over. Uh, he shared a helicopter with a woman who was transporting some of the hiker's organs to Sverdlovsk. Their organs? Yeah. Why did he have to go? Uh, he just happened to be on the same, like, they're like, hey, we got a helicopter <laughs> to bring you back to the place. We only have one helicopter. But the problem <laughs> is, yeah, it's with their organs. Good thing is you're going to be sharing a ride with all of your friends again. So bad thing is it's the, or, the organs were being returned organs. to Sverdlovsk for further analysis and the hikers families were encountering resistance in getting the bodies of their loved ones returned to them for a proper burial. I believe that this is where things get like kind of conspiratorial. So is that a word conspiratorial? I like it. Yeah, it is. It's a good word. It's, re- it's real. You should name that name the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Con, con, no, I'm not even going to. Yeah, it's a word. Conspiratorial editorial. Conspiratorial. All right. That's all. I hope you like that hard P going into your head. ASMR. Um, so the parents of the dead uh, had to contend with the opaque motives of local officials. Yudin remembers that the regional authorities were eager to get beyond the entire incident, and in private, talks with family members strongly suggested that their loved ones be buried in the mountains. The, if- the mountains where they died. Yeah. The, Why would the family members ever want Government that? officials were like, hey... Why don't we just let him bury Let's just leave Yeah. Him. The officials wanted for nobody to come to the funeral for nobody to show up, Yudin says. This is this is sounding very... Right. The authorities also, wanted to... If you tell me anything was covered up or a conspiracy in Soviet-era Russia, Russia I'm like, yeah, no, it, it did. The authorities wanted to... It's probably deeper than any conspiracy <laughs> theory could possibly imagine. So the authorities wanted to bury them where they were found so there would be no funeral and it would, and it would be done. The older sister of Kalevatov, in her testimony to investigator, called the organization of the funeral arrangements disgraceful. The search teams had not yet found her brother, but she was keenly aware of the ordeal the other families had endured. The parents of the hikers, she recalled, had been summoned by party officials into private meetings in which they were told their children should not be returned to Sverdlovsk, but buried instead in Ivdel. They lived and studied and made friends in Sverdlovsk, Kolotov's sister told investigators. Why should they be buried in Ivdel? According to Kolotov's sister, in these private meetings, each set of parents had been told that the other parents had already agreed to Ivdel burial with a mass grave and a single obelisk marker. When the parents of Zina Kormogorova proposed that all the families should be called together to come to an agreement, the secretary of the Institute Committee of the Regional Communist Party made excuses that the families were too spread out to make a single meeting feasible. So they don't... So they're telling every family that every other family wants something. They're saying that every other family... Yeah, so they're saying to each family, hey, all the other families are totally cool with us burying them either on the mountain or at this, like, With no funeral and no... With no major funeral in, like, the major city and no attention to the matter, Mm -hmm. which is so sketchy. Yes, very sketchy. That's, like, like, you know... And then the Mrs... Mr. and Mrs. Zena wanted to get together with the other families and the communist and guy like, was like, uh, no, we can't do it. Uh, no, that's impossible. Right. Like people ski hundreds of miles in this country, but no, you guys can't get together. <laughs> she got to shot talk. in the leg and hiked it another <laughs> 50 miles. But, uh, so the families wrote letters in an uproar to have the funeral in the city. And here, uh, Yuri 
uh, Yudin remembers them insisting, we want to visit our families, our kids, we want to visit them at their graves. So, when the family stood their ground demanding the returns of the bodies, a compromise was reached between city authorities and the parents of the deceased. They would be allowed to bury their children in Sverdlovsk, but under the condition that the funeral could not be a single event. The memorial service they stipulated would be divided into two services held on two separate days, minimalizing the funeral turnout and therefore minimizing the death of the young hikers. Yuri believes they wanted to pretend that nothing happened. Yeah, I'm getting that vibe. Yeah. So... This is where Yuri Yudin's government theory is starting to like have traction. Right, exactly. Like where he's like, this is kind of, yeah, things are being sketchy. So that, you know, they have, there's pictures of the funeral. I don't think I have them up on the site, but I might add them. Basically, there was uh, Igor Dyatlov's littlest, like smallest sister. Mm-hmm. Uh, recounts like what she saw and basically windows were blacked out from the inside with the kind of camel- camouflage. These are on the hearsts, 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 and that there was a bunch of men dressed strangely who were not paying attention to the actual funeral services, but instead were monitoring the crowd. So she's like, def- like a definitely Secret Service K- type of KGB. vibe going on. So they, oh, KGB. Yeah, she's like, there's definitely KGB there. Definitely. I'm kind of scared that we're gonna put this out there saying KGB this many times. <laughs> we're gonna, we're get- gonna get hacked or something. So that's like her. She's like, it was really weird. There was government agents everywhere, and everything was super on the DL. Now, another thing they noticed was when these bodies were laid to rest and people finally saw the bodies, everyone remarked on how strange the color of the skin was. Every single hiker's skin was like a yellow or a dark brown. So, like I was saying, they could recognize Soviet police when they saw them. He remembers seeing that day several men in civilian clothing paying close attention to the funeral crowd, but not to the service itself. Someone wrote a poem for the whole group, which I won't read right now because it's kind of long. But yeah. i don't want to do that yep um so we go on we're gonna let's get to the last of the bodies yeah let's let's dig them up wait so they had funeral services and they didn't even have all the bodies there's one body in particular i'm waiting for especially and who's that the 37 year old man sasha yeah yeah he sounds Something <laughs> has to do with him. He has to thicken this plot more. His body is what I'm assuming is going to happen. So, they're in mid-March, Lev Ivanov, head FBI agent guy, he's called away to Moscow for reasons that he would not disclose to others. Upon his return, Carolyn and others noticed a pronounced change in his demeanor. Carolyn says, we could not recognize him when he returned. Wait, who is this? This is the head of Carolyn? Or the head FBI, the head FBI guy, Lev uh, Lev Ivanov. He was mm-hmm. the guy who like rolled up and found the clues at the. Yeah, so he went to Moscow. So he got called away to Moscow. Yep. In the middle of this investigation, and when he came back, he was totally different. He no longer mentioned murder or spheres anymore, and he'd often advise others to hold their tongues. So he got he got sat down and talked to. Yeah, and was like, "Stop talking about conspiracy and orbs and shit." <laughs> so something happened. That's what it seems to be indicating. Yeah. On May 3rd, so they have now waited a long time for the snow to melt and thaw, uh, and then they start the search again. And, like, we're going to find 
the rest of the bodies. Yeah. So on May 3rd, Steppen, remember, Mancy, leader Steppen, mm-hmm. chief Mancy guy, comes across some unusual branches just under the snow in a ravine near the cedar tree. The branches appear to have been cut by a knife. Colonel local, Sanders. Yeah, Colonel Sanders, a local <laughs> cop uh, who is by that point overseeing the search operations, orders immediate probing of the area surrounding the branches. Uh, on the first day of probing, they hit upon a cache of clothing. What is odd about the articles is that they are abandoned in the snow, not attached to a person. Stranger still, some of the clothing looks to have been cut or shredded. There's a crumpled gray Chinese woolen vest turned inside out, knitted trousers. What, a Chinese woolen vest? Chinese woolen vest. Okay. Turned inside out, knitted trousers, a brown woolen sweater with lilac thread, a right trouser leg, and a bandage one yard long. And the more they dig, the closer they come to the creek bed, which means by the second day, the men are digging through a combination of snow and slush, and the second day of excavation reels yet more clothing. Black cotton sports trousers with the right leg missing, presumably like the other half of the previous day's trousers, and half of the women's sweater belonging to Dubanina. So Luda, the tough girl. Luda. Luda. So on the second evening, the men's shovels hit upon a body. A body. It is clearly a man, though the decomposition from the water is such that the face is unrecognizable. He's wearing a gray sweater and strangely two wristwatches. The men continue to dig. What? Yeah, he has two watches on. See, this is the, <laughs> the little things yeah, it's, are adding up to make this to make not make any fucking dig, sense. Exactly. That I want to know what happens so bad. Right. So the men continue to dig, soon uncover, un- uncovering three more bodies lying nearby. Luda is the only identical one in the four. She is dressed in a cap, a yellow undershirt, two sweaters. Do you think she's actually identifiable or it's just because she's the body that's a woman? Um, Probably the latter, probably the body of the woman. Yeah. Um, she has two sweaters, brown ski trousers, and two socks on one foot. The other foot is wrapped in a torn sweater. <laughs> what? Her head is pointed upstream while the three men are oriented towards the center of the stream. Two of the men are found in a position of embrace in what appears to be a desperate attempt to conserve warmth. When Lev Ivanov hears of the discovery, he flies to the mountains to assess the condition of the bodies, arriving on either May 5th or 6th. The bodies, which have been laying in a soup of melting snow and creek water, are at various stages of decay. Mm, the volunteers soup. have <laughs> pulled them out of slush at some point at the bottom of the pit and have wrapped them in a tarp to slow further decomposition. Ivanov notes that the body parts have managed to avoid water are mostly the body parts that have managed to avoid water are mostly intact, but the flesh that was tr- that was lying in the direct stream of melting snow had succumbed to the water's microbes. The bodies need to be flown to Ivdel without delay. But the helicopter Ivanov himself flew on has since left the area, and Ivanov sends a radiogram stressing the urgency of the situation. So he's like, hey, we got these four decomposing bodies. We need to get them out so we can, you know, actually do an autopsy as soon as possible. Yeah. Basically, what ends up happening is there is... They find four bodies in total. Yeah. Okay. So that's... I believe that's all. That's everybody. Yeah. So they've now found all the bodies, and they're like, hey, we need to get these bodies out so we're i'm assuming they're the last three guys but it's at this point in the storyline yeah they are not confirmed i can confirm lev ivanov sends a radiogram that day saying hey if these are not evacuated tomorrow they'll decompose Mm -hmm. the last four hikers are the missing link to the story of what happened on the night of february 1st if their bodies are not immediately transported to ivdel for a proper autopsy ivanov knows it will be a disastrous setback from which the investigation may not recover so he's like, hey, we we got to 
We gotta get this out. I'm guessing they're not going to be. Yep. Getting the four remaining bodies down from the mountains and onto an examination table was not an easy task. The Dyatlov's case notoriety had spread through the Sverdlov's region and beyond, and had a bunch of rumors and theories swirling all around it. Swirling. Yeah. It seemed that everyone in the region had his or own ideas of what happened, speculation that ranged from Nancy killers and mysterious armed men to experimental military aircraft and radioactive weapons. By spring, the suppositional winds were blowing in the direction of the military cover-up. One of the members of the search party who had been on the scene when the remaining bodies were found had one such theory involving UFOs and temporary insanity. Nikolai Kuzminov spoke, spoke for many of those who had witnessed bizarre lights in the sky that winter. In a letter printed in Gushlin's Murder at the Mound of the Dead, Kuzminov wrote, I think that their death was caused by fire orbs, which he <laughs> which saw one night, followed by five to six minutes of mind confusion. In support of this, he pointed to the fact the hikers had strayed from their tent like a bunch of lunatics. So people are now like just throwing theories all over the place. I was going to say that fire orbs and what was Yeah, fire orbs and temporary insanity. And he's saying that like, hey, all these other people saw these really bright flyer fire orbs in the sky. And that's what he think did it. And then Luda's father. So Luda's own father in testimony from mid-April, weeks before his daughter's body was found, talked of a similar force affecting the hiker's senses. I think a missile was launched from within the USSR. It all makes me think that they fled from the tent to an explosion and a mission near the height of their campsite. See, that makes more sense. Yeah. Well, that's a fairly obvious statement considering the alternative is fire orbs. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, I could see that being, uh, like, they freaked the fuck out because, like, a missile explodes, like, in the distance. I would... Yeah, especially if they thought, like, if they... I don't know how common the knowledge of right. radiation poisoning from missiles was at that time but they might have been like we're getting radiated right now yeah so with a missile or fire orb right. or right and one of them was a you know physicist like uh he had a major in like phys- not, uh, nuclear physics so maybe wait who had nuclear physics i think it was oh was that K- kolevitov now i'm well, just saying we'll names. edit this out <laughs> How not scary of a mythical thing is a fire orb? I don't think that's that scary. Yeah. Just a ball of things <laughs> moving around. Flying in the sky. That is, n- considering all the scary things that it could have been. Right. The fire orb just doesn't a fire do orb, So no. you're not, you're not into fire orbs. If they were orbs. like, it was a witch, I'd be like, holy <laughs> shit. Baba Yaga rolled up. Yeah. It, no. Well, I mean, we know it's Baba Yaga. End of the day. I'm not saying it's not Baba. I'm yet to find something like this that was not Baba Yaga. <laughs> So with all these oh, theories saying. in rampant circulation, Lev Ivanov, head FBI guy, mm-hmm. may not have been too surprised when after he requested an Air Force helicopter to transport the bodies, the pilot refused to let the bodies near his aircraft. I <laughs> love that. <laughs> Either he didn't realize the nature of the mission when he agreed to it, or something about the tarp-covered bu- corpses gave him pause. Either way, when he arrived at the he scene... He had the pause? <laughs> when he arrived at the scene, he refused to carry out the task, informing Ivanov that his chief wouldn't approve of the transportation of corpses without the proper vessel. He specifically requested zinc-lined coffins, which are sealed to prevent toxic or biological leakage. Was there... Yeah, this makes me think maybe there was, like, maybe a disease at the time in rural Russia that he was scared of. That kind of makes sense. Maybe. That he was afraid he was going to get from the bodies. Yeah, this... So his refusal to carry the corpses resulted in a heated argument 
and they were they couldn't come to a, an agreement and he s- sent off a radiogram this is Lev Ivanov sent off a radiogram to Ivdel saying it's disgraceful i and 14 other comrades brought corpses by land to the helicopter despite my compelling request they didn't take the bodies aboard as a communist i'm shocked at the actions of the crew and ask you to inform the city committee of the party and commander colonel general whatever i'm as a communist <laughs> yeah basically <laughs> He's like, due to the state of the bodies, he's saying, hey, you know, they're in such terrible shape. The fact that we can't get on this helicopter, we're not going to be able to, you know, do any kind of autopsies on these things due to the, how terrible, like the terrible shape they're in. So the corpses would have to keep another day for them to get the zinc lined coffins. So on May 8th, four days after their discovery, Ew. the hikers' bodies were taken to the mortuary at Ivdel Ew. for further examination. So they're probably so nasty. First on the examining table was 24-year-old Alexander Kolevatov. Uh, they began by cataloging abundant pieces of clothing, noting the conspicuous, though by now expected, lack of footwear. Though Kolevatov had gone out of into the snow with his boots, no responsible endorsement is ever caught without matches, and he had a matchbox in one of his pockets, along with a packet of now-empty painkillers. Kolevatov's ankle also had been bandaged, which indicated a previous hiking injury. So maybe this is why they're running. See, I think that's maybe though why they were running three days late originally. Yeah, because that's yeah. The rest of the examination found nothing unusual about the body other than rigor mortis, uh, liver mortis, and the accompanying discoloration of the skin and organs. What's liver mortis? I assume it's just rigor mortis of your liver. <laughs> I have no. But is that why? Like, I'm only saying because I know like when you have liver problems, your doesn't your body turn like your skin turns yellow? Oh, that's a good point. So oh, I don't know really if this has point. to do with the yeah. The you're right. But they made it seem like it was weird. So, what yeah. did you say? Is it skin or eyes? Maybe it is eyes. I knew because I, 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 I went to school with a kid who had a, a, lither, a liver lither? issue and his eyes were yellow. <laughs> That's episode two. <laughs> Why you eyes? Kid you went to school with. <laughs> so with the first examination out of the way, and Ivanov might have expected that three others had met the same fates, and indeed upon initial examination of 37-year-old Sasha Zolotaryov, two things seem to be progressing as the previous examination have. Zolotaryov was wearing generous layers of clothing, no shoes, and his skin and organs showed the same discoloration. One superficial difference was Zolotaryov's multiple tattoos, in addition to the tattoo of the beats <laughs> and the name Gina on his right arm and hand. His left arm revealed a five-pointed star and a number 1921. It was Zolotaryov's midsection that struck the forensic analyst as unusual. The right side of his chest had sustained serious injury with five fractured ribs resulting in severe hemorrhaging. So the autopsy guy concludes that the fractures had been inflicted by a large force while the victim had been alive. So then they go to Kolya Thibault Brignall's he found similar violent injuries, though this time the fractures were to the head. He concluded that Kolya had died of impressed fracture of skull dome and based with abundant hemorrhage. He added that the injury had been sustained while the hiker had been alive by effect of a large force. So some large force messed these. So these guys up. got messed up. Yeah, these dudes got that got they got got they got messed up real good. And then they examine Luda, twenty-year-old's body had been had sustained massive. Th- thoracic damage thoracic excuse me damage with internal hemorrhaging including that of her right heart ventricle 
plus fractures to nine of her ribs. Most disturbing, however, was that when, Z- when, Z- when the examiner examined the young woman's mouth, he saw that their tongue was missing. So we've been over that, but that was like big news. Yeah. Uh, he offered no explanation to the report for this last detail, concluding only that, along with the two of her companions, Luda's death would be classified as violent. Yeah. Yeah. So, without solid evidence, Ivanov knew that he needed more information to properly interpret the violent classification of the forensic expert. So, four days before the funeral, Ivanov ordered radiological tests performed on the hikers' organs, samples, and clothing. The results of the test, however, would not be available for another 11 days after the hikers were buried. The clothes of the hikers was a different matter. The interpretations of this data is one of the central reasons why the Dyatlov case has continued to spawn conspiracy theories five decades later. The radiologist stated that the Soviet Union's sanity standards for beta particle contamination were under 5,000 decays per minute per 23 square inches. You don't have to like know that. So 25 is the number. (laughs) Yeah. Has to be under that if you're not going insane from radiation. Right. If the hikers had been exposed to natural levels of radiation, then they... Why then was a brown sweater belonging to one of the hikers found to contain almost twice this number? Almost 50 So instead of 5,000 decays per minute, which is like the standard, it had 9,900. That's a lot. It's a lot more. So these were this viably going insane they, from... This was some radioactivity. So this level of contamination, quote, exceeds standards for people working with radioactive substances. It turned out that the other pieces of clothing found on the hikers also measured levels above the normal 5,000 decays per minute, and because the clothing had been sitting in four days melting stone water... Uh, the radiologist suggested that one can suppose that the initial contamination was much higher. So he's saying that because it's been like so many days since the actual time the bodies were found, he's guessing that when they were found, like the radio, like the radioactivity was like way higher than it is now that they're doing the actual autopsy. So he suspects that it was a, it was like a way higher when they were found, right? Yeah. So just one day before the radiation tests were to come back from the lab for the actual bodies, Ivanov bowed to the pressure from his regional superiors to terminate the criminal investigation effective immediately. Who told him that? Like, the government. Was like, was like, stop looking into this? Yeah, like a day before they actually got the body radiation. Because this is all just the clothing, but they didn't get info, info from the bodies. Although Ivanov did have, did have the option to apply for a one-month extension, it would have been unusual to do so in a case in which the bodies had already been found. Additionally, applying for an extension would have put immense stress on Ivanov to produce conclusive new evidence within a month. And so on May 28th, without being able to follow through on the test that he himself had ordered, Ivanov closed the Dyatlov case, citing no particular cause for the hiker's death. Cold case. Literally. I get it. Yep. Okay. So... so. That is the Dyatlov Pass incident. That is the incident. Now here... Oh, that's the facts. That's the facts of the incident. That's what happened. 